Alright, we're live. Okay, oh, Chris is the right way around. Fantastic. <laughs> it's worked. All, all, everything's come together right at the right point. So, <laughs> welcome Australia. Welcome to the Stand Up Australia podcast, Stand Up Sits Down with, a contrarian conversation rebutting the mainstream narrative. So we've got a bit, di- bit of a different show today. Uh, we're going to be speaking with our special guest, Dr. Chris Neal, who's the co-founder and president of AMPS, who's joining Robin and myself to talk about COVID-19 vaccines, events, past and present in the AMPS schedule over the coming months and other relevant other, other relevant medical news, as well as want to get a bit of a rundown on the uh, the recent tour of Asim Malhotra and, and co, who you were involved with. But... Yeah, welcome, Chris. Um, uh, let's just start off with a bit of a introduction to people who may not know you. Probably everybody does that's watching this, to be honest. But just um, yeah, run over amps. Why just start it, and um, what's going on at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I, I'm um, I'm in Victoria here, um, and I've uh, I'm in my mid forties. I qualified as a doctor in two thousand one and a cardiologist in two thousand nine. Um, and got involved in a whole lot of things, including research and um, including patient care. I was in a busy metropolitan hospital down here in Melbourne um, since 2013. Uh, six years of that time, I was the head of a coronary care unit, which was one of the busier ones in Melbourne. Um, and I headed up services for heart failure, i.e. the sort of the um, end of the road part of cardiovascular care. Uh, where the where the heart is sustained damage and doesn't pump uh, adequately, uh, so that was that's a real the passion. I would I've which was seen the busier ones, thousands of patients in that context, uh, and treated their families as well. And um, and I I've done pri- private practice in twenty twenty one. That radically changed uh, because the mandates <clears throat> were um, were uh, coming in. Uh, it was very late September they got announced in in Victoria. Um, thankfully, we had started uh, AMPS, Australian Medical Professional Society. About a month before that time, um, several of us got together out of some pre-existing networks, including um, uh, CMN, COVID Medical Network, uh, with the team from Red Union. Um, and I think it was a successful combination. The aim was to provide... Uh, um, workplace support um, in, in a legal way. Uh, it didn't didn't turn out um, very well, but that's um, that's only I think still has to be regarded as temporary because these things are ongoing. Um, and AMPS has rolled into a phase last year of um, much more advocacy. Um, so I was involved in writing and speaking uh, and lots of more networking in between doing two election campaigns um, and more of all of the above. And that enabled us, I think, to get quite a bit of public support and um, and uh, recognition. 2023 has been really exciting. Uh, I would highlight a trip to Canberra in February, which was really formative um, of some of the things where we're doing to advocate for the vaccine injured. We've been working closely with a lot of politicians, including uh, Mr. Russell Broadbent. Um, And that led into our biggest sort of effort today, which was the tour of Dr. Asim Malhotra. Real privilege to get to know this man of integrity, but also to hear of his um, strategy 
and his ability to work with media and pull off already in his in his career. He's my age, um, incidentally. Uh, a lot of real victories for good healthcare, uh, and now I, I think he's he's incredibly determined to bring about real accountability and uh, open discussion. In fact, the removal of the mRNA shots from from the market, something we've been calling for since August last year. So that was really exciting. Um, we're, we're continuing to really try to deliver on some major um, goals this year. One of those in August, on the 9th of August, will be a uh, conference in Parliament House on excess death. This will be the inquiry that they refuse to have um, by vote. This will include what looks like about 15 experts giving um, giving high-level uh, briefings, uh, having also contributed to a book which is being assembled as we speak, uh, which will be about two inches thick and will land on many desks in Canberra to show that um, people are not uh, ignoring this, that uh, there is a lot of intellectual work going on regarding the problem of excess death and the potential link to a massive rollout of highly novel products. Uh, we're pretty engaged with legal uh, people, uh, various legal people, um, and we'll, we'll have some exciting statements coming out in the very near future, which um, which I think will hopefully be high impact too. Um, on that note, we we did we are a, a collegiate body of, of doctors. Uh, we have hundreds of members. We, our primary goal uh, is to grow into a real fighting force for them, uh, to be to really take the flak for them when it comes to pressure from regulators. Uh, we've got a number of, I think, um, steps in our growth ahead. Uh, we think that as, as the narrative continually unravels, that we'll really grow and could become uh, quite a formidable force in Australia's history. It started in Australia's medical industry, I should say. Uh, it started with a letter in August last year. I know I've taken a long time, so I'll wrap up this bit. But in, in August last year, we started this. A major part of our journey was sending out a letter to all um, colleges and medical associations, nursing, allied health, all 70, um, to introduce ourselves. And, and really the reception was um, not very, you know, very little engagement because I think the, the temptation has been it's easier to just dismiss all of these contrarian views, even if they come from professionals, um, as outlandish and by definition crazy. I think that is, um, however, that that has a very limited life expectancy, that, that view, that intellectually sloppy and lazy approach I think will begin to unravel. I'm very hopeful that it will very soon too. Mm. What do you think will cause that unraveling, Chris? I don't know. Um, I think that um, we can point to things, however, that have already you know, been added to the equation this year. One of those is the first class action, I believe worldwide, the first class action for vaccine injury victims. Uh, which was filed by Dr. Melissa McCann with others in the first half of this year. It's um, it is a remarkable thing, and it's one of those things which makes me think that Australia does have something real, uh, you know, 
some real potential to impact these events because of course what goes on here is connected to what happens everywhere mm. that was huge that is, that is huge um that's uh something i'm very proud of um there's there's it should um, be too well i think that's right and, and there's also in australia and perhaps more there's there's two things which stand out to me one is that we have recognition of the vaccine injured um and what you know whatever you think of individuals that have come uh, people like professor uh karen um phelps karen phelps um and and others there has been a penetration of that awareness and that, that visibility uh into australian life and I, I suspect that's more than some other countries and i'm only going by talking with them uh, as i have um and i think that's powerful we've had a certain amount of penetration in the mainstream media um there, there's more and more organization uh, the other thing i was going to say is when you look at our politicians that are engaged in this issue and again you compare that to overseas we've got a higher ratio so of course we could name them um you know the five well, we don't need to name them but you know the five odd senators and more mps um what i can say is there are more there are more that need that that can be um brought into those ranks i know that from personal in the us i can really only think of senator ron johnson who's speaking up on behalf of the vaccine there you go. yeah so we're, there are various we're, others like like rand paul who were yeah. Uh, speaking about you know other aspects, but not on behalf of the injured. Yeah, well, I, th I think we have a, a special thing going there with, with the the ratio of of uh, people willing to speak out. And I can say for sure there are more that may well be entering the fray. Uh, I'd love to see that in a big way. I think history will definitely reward these people. Um, I'll be communicating something next week, and I'll try to talk a bit about this in general terms, um, which is um, a, a an incredible action uh, by one of the well-known legal teams uh, in Australia um, that really highlights um, the way in which these genetic products have been uh, launched into the market um, released, should I say, uh, into the market without proper due process. And this relates to some, you know, unique things about Australian laws um, where uh, having analysed this for, for over six months, there really appears to be no way that they can get out of the, um, the, the, <clears throat> the, the forceful um, case that's being brought against them. Um, and this includes companies. Again, I think this might be unique, and it might it might relate to the um, confluence of laws that we have, and the way in which I think, uh, out of expediency, a lot of those things were just dealt with in an extraordinarily sloppy way, which I just doubt they'll be able to cover themselves. That's something I've spoken in veiled terms. Um, about but i'll be carefully constructing uh some communications um going out to ams members and others in the coming week fantastic yeah i think yeah, one of the people hearing more. yeah 
one of the reasons why I really wanted to get get you on this week and just have like a, a chat with all of us was just because I think at the moment I think we're uh, sort of threatened to have the the hot topic of of this vaccine debate taken not not away from us, but it seems to be less of a hot topic um, because people are sort of trying to push it into the background and and be like, well, you know, it's over now. Uh, you know, we don't have to take these vaccines anymore. And I do see a lot of people dropping off and the pressure's not quite there. Even even with people that would normally want to talk about this stuff, it's a bit like, oh, I don't want to talk about it anymore. But personally, I believe now is the time to go for the kill. Um, and I know you both do as well. Um, so there's been some really interesting developments in the last few weeks, uh, which I wanted to, to talk about. Um, I guess you, you're happy to move on to the the first paper we're going to be discussing today yeah lovely so uh the first one i want to discuss is one that was briefly up online on the lancet as a preprint um which i've just got here uh so the ssrn maybe you can tell us a bit more about the lancet preprint and how it works yeah i mean um so preprint is the idea of, of publishing something usually with a PDF um, before it's gone through uh, a formal peer review process. Um, in the context of a pandemic, that's um, recognised as important um, because of the pace of evolution of information. Uh, so it's encouraged in, a, in the pandemic setting to get preprints out, which gets the information out ahead of peer review. But, of course, the people looking at that sort of high-level information are peers. So it's a bit of a, you know, I, I think it's very good. It served us well. Um, these guys, uh, the authors of this paper, um, include Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Paul Alexander and others um, have, have obviously uh, submitted it to the Lancet but uh, gone ahead and, and requested preprint um, server hosting. And then we've had a message, I think just this morning, um, I became aware this was pulled down with a kind of a, an explanation that the conclusions don't match the methodology, which is an interesting um, statement, which, um, yeah. you know, ha may or may not have merit. I, I doubt it. Um, I've got that. But here, I, it I, says... I was fascinated that it actually got up. Um, it's a very provocative piece of, of writing and systematic review and I'm encouraged that it got as far as it did in this process if things continue in this kind of way you'd imagine it won't pass peer review but that doesn't mean it well it's already out there um, people have downloaded it and it can be submitted somewhere else we'll see maybe the Lancet will go with it and I, I do think that we're seeing a, a Streisand effect here um, in other words, you know, when, when they take it down, people are much more curious about what it was and people who would ordinarily mm. say, oh, a preprint, how boring, and now going, where can I read this thing? So yeah. I, I'm really interested that it got into the Lancet. Um, Do you think that's part of the plan? Like they, they knew it was going to be taken yeah. down, so they've, they've got on the preprint because they're like, well, it's not going to last for long, but when it does... It's yeah. it's going to give it more credibility almost in that Streisand effect because they I, know I, it's going to be taken down. 
Yeah, I'd say they would have modelled I mean, it out. Authors, sure. The authors had that intention. Mm. Oh, look, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, they're, yeah. they're all smart people. Um, in terms of The Lancet even accepting this, I guess this is very curious that The Lancet has not exactly covered itself in glory throughout the pandemic. They they published, for instance, the uh, the Surgisphere uh, um, mm. trial, the, the kind of deep-sixed hydroxychloroquine early on in the piece. And, of course, that Surgisphere trial turned out to be completely bogus, as in they just invented the data set. Yes. And my favourite part of that was that Surgisphere had, what, three employees at the time that they claimed to be doing this mass, this you know massive international data gathering um, exercise. One of those employees uh, was a uh, science fiction writer and another styled herself as an adult model and hostess. <laughs> These were the people who brought you the Surgisphere. Results that yeah. claim to prove that hydroxychloroquine didn't work. Okay, mm. right. And the Lancet that passed, so that passed the Lancet's peer review process. Okay, yeah, that that got passed. But yeah. we're yeah. told this one is going to get pulled down because the conclusions don't match the um the the methodology. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so the exact the exact reason they gave is this preprint has been removed by preprints with the Lancet because the study's conclusions are not supported by the study methodology. So yeah. this was titled A Systematic Review of Autopsy Findings and Deaths After COVID-19 Vaccination. So um, I just throw in there, though, the fact that it got this far, I would suggest um, implies that there is a mixture in the Lancet. Uh, this could have easily, and I would have predicted much more likely being rejected at the outset with a with a communication back saying the findings are not of sufficient priority. That's the classic line uh, for the journal at this time. Mm -hmm. But so I suggest there's there is some editorial uh, sympathy. Um, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, that's an interesting take. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. And we've got to remember, too, the Lancet's had quite a, um, a history with these sorts of vaccine studies. This, this is where the original MMR um, study uh, was done, which, you know, linked vaccines in the first place to autism, but uh, which ended up getting taken down years later. Um, but, you know, and even, even uh, I think last year um, or the year before, the editor of the Lancet's, was talking about how maybe at least 50% of all studies going through the journal were fraudulent in the first place. So it's No, oh, that that comment of Richard Horton's goes back way before the before the scandemic. No, yeah. um I, I I can't give you an exact date on that, but that's that that comment by Horton is at least 5 years old. I remember yeah. writing about that many years ago. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean it, and it's not all a fraudulent is a strong word. Um there's I mean, a lot of false findings find their way into the um, into literature through means other than fraud or lesser than fraud, and and that's basically the fact you can get type one error, you can get misleading positive findings by chance. But if they're sexy, if they're interesting, then you've got a bias towards getting them in print, and and they go straight through that process, and that is probably the biggest driver. Um, and this is a crisis which has been recognised from bench to bedside um, for the last decade, and involves tying into ties tie-ins to some of the uh, some well-known statements by John Onidas and others. So, can we go into the study now and just um, have you read the full thing, Robin? Yes. Yep. 
So can you just give us a rundown of uh, what it's found? Yeah, sure. So what? Uh, look, it's a it's the systematic review, which means what they did was they they searched the medical literature for uh, published studies or published reports. Really, is a better way of putting it of autopsy findings in in deaths that occurred after COVID. Uh, COVID-19 vaccination, okay? And they had various uh, selection criteria, so they whittled it down from an initial 678 studies down to uh, 40, 44 papers. So 44 papers that contained 325 autopsy cases and one necropsy case. Actually, Chris, what's the difference between an autopsy and a necropsy? I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't look that up. Sorry, I just don't oh, know. Okay. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I'll, I'll you have to exhume a body first. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds nasty. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, um, so in other words, this this was not original research that they conducted in, in the sense that, you know, McCulloch and, and the other authors didn't, you know, personally conduct these, these autopsies. What they did was they went through published reports in the literature of autopsies and, and then they, they synthesized the um the findings and and so after i suppose you know sifting through all these different case reports they concluded that that so so not 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 they concluded that but after they'd done the maths i suppose uh they calculated that uh almost 74 percent uh of, of deaths that had occurred uh in the context of a covid vaccine and where that that dead person had then been referred for for autopsy were found to uh, be due to or significantly contributed to by COVID nineteen vaccination. Okay, so um, because there's there's such a wide diversity of, of of case reports, and this is something that we were talking about uh, before we went live today. So Chris asked, was the staining for the spike protein done? And no, as uh, I, what I haven't done yet is to go through every single one of the papers that that they used to that, that they synthesized to get this. So my my quick and dirty answer would be no, I don't think uh, just, just from my quick skimming of it, I don't think that the majority of these um, autopsies actually use the kind of staining that's been developed by um, for example, Ryan Cole um, or, or even that was was sort of pioneered by, the German pathologist who who just died recently, um, Anna Burkhardt. Yeah, Anna Burkhardt. Yes, yes. So I I think the the process that was used in these autopsies was quite heterodox. Yeah, and uh, maybe maybe that is what the the Lancet's editorial team is objecting to. I mean, you can't really tell. Their the reason for for pulling it down was not exactly detailed. Yeah, yeah I mean, my comments. Um... From my survey of the autopsy literature is mostly they don't use staining for spike protein. Um, and I've reviewed quite a few cases, but that doesn't stop the authors who are most often the um, the doctors performing the analysis. Um, doesn't stop them using their clinical and pathological logic to to rule in or or uh, or state make a statement like that it was a likely contributor. Um, to the death and you know first of all I, I haven't been able to read the full pdf yet because i tried to get it this morning and was frustrating um couldn't even get it on the wayback machine but <laughs> thankfully i've got a copy from mitch so I'll, I'll definitely go through it in line by line 
Um, it gets to the point of of you know epistemology itself. What? How do you know what you know? If you're in an area, a professional in it, uh, you get a sense of cause and effect. Um, there are ways of being methodical about that, um, such as the Bradford Hill criteria. You know, you can. Is there a mechanism? Is there this and that? But the sequence of events is the biggest thing. Um, often history perceptions of the patient should, uh, are weighted heavily. Traditionally, they should be. Uh, that's as Asim says uh, at every talk he gives. Um, that's what we're taught in medical school: that eighty percent of information comes from listening to the story of the patient. Um, so there are lots of lots of things, and that's that's traditionally what where the authority is to say that you know if you have touched the person feeling them burning up with a fever and, and seeing them for three days and then they pass away and you know all that if you you've got far more authority authority just um on the theory of knowledge itself than someone external to that process uh who is a public servant otherwise unknown who makes a determination that this is not causally related there's, there's comparatively there's no authority so causation is as much as ultimately working out causation is, is philosophically really challenging there's no comparison when someone's gone through that process you know um and in the autopsy you know in the autopsy room cutting cutting down into organs and so forth um they're far more able to make a statement of what they think is going on uh, putting every synthesizing every bit of information yeah um, just 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 yeah. to highlight that, Chris, um, um, Mitch, if you want to go to page three and 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 uh, and just highlight the interpretation, which is what is that? It's about mm, I'll see at the top of the page. So the interpretation, the consistency seen among cases in this review with known COVID nineteen vaccine adverse events, their mechanisms, and related excess death, coupled with autopsy confirmation and physician led death adjudication, suggest there is a high likelihood of a causal link between COVID nineteen vaccines and death in most cases. Further urgent investigation is required for the purpose of clarifying our findings. So exactly what you said, Chris, like you're you're you're, you're triangulating data from from mm. a number of different sources. But you know, yeah. in a case where say, actually, here's a here's a question that I wanted to ask you before when when you were um giving us a, a sketch of your of your bio um prior to the release of these products how often did you see a case of myocarditis uh look i um would see acute myocarditis um or myopericarditis a dozen times a year i oh. would see it more often than others because i was someone that you would prefer a a case to or a difficult case to. Yep. Um, and I would see the after effects, the sequelae, such as heart failure, um, very frequently. Yeah. Okay. And treat them. About, so on average, one, one case a month, yeah. And so when you see this uptick of myocarditis, so, so say you're a, you are the person conducting this autopsy of a, of a young male with absolutely no history um consistent with, with say viral myocarditis okay so so he hasn't been apparently ill and the only thing that that happened to him prior to him you know dropping dead essentially is he had one of these shots and then you cut him open and take a look at his heart i again like you you can't absolutely prove that the jab was the cause of him 
um, having myocarditis that led to his death. But you know, there's there's enough Bradford Hill criteria lying around on the table there for you to put the pieces together, right? Yeah, and it, it's it shouldn't be a controversy, but when you've got a politically loaded issue such as a vaccine, um, that you know, and that, that reminds me, I I saw one case of uh, pre prior prior to the rollout of COVID nineteen vaccines, I saw one case of vaccine induced. Myocarditis. It was a mild case, not a big deal. I, I've got to confess, I didn't know much about, um, you know, uh, pharmacovigilance reporting in the DAN and, and and so forth. So much. I'm in a much different position now. But I remember trying to communicate that to colleagues, and I won't name the vaccine. Doesn't matter. Um, it was an adult, and it was it was just basic logic, um, sequence of events no other ex exclusion of other explanations and it was straightforward um but i got i got pushed back and i remember my gut said okay just don't push this um it's going to be more more harm uh, so it's it's interesting i think there's a resistance that the, the whole the whole genre of vaccines is politically loaded and it's difficult <laughs> to, for people to think through it do you think you would have got that same degree of resistance if the pharmaceutical agent in question was was just a regular drug rather than a vaccine? Do you do you think I, there's I would I'd suspect not quite as much. Um and this this, you know, uh Seymour Hotra states it beautifully that he had put um vaccine in a separate category as being in, among the safest products and, and with huge uh, benefit to risk ratios. Um, which is interesting because I, I just to on the con the, to contra um, to provide a contra example. I remember my first lecture on vaccine side effects, and it was it was it was striking because the vaccine side effects in the, the really worrying ones include encephalitis and um, encephalomeningitis and, and some serious things. And sort of grappling with this, and it was presented, I think fairly well, but with the view that um, that the benefits were worth that. And and that, you know, it did strike me as a moral dilemma, um, yeah. but I, I, I just moved through it. And, it's because um, it's yeah. very, very rare, remember, these uh, side effects. Um, yeah, they, anyway. they were very, very rare, but extraordinarily <laughs> severe. And and I think it was it was discussed in a sympathetic way by the by the lecturer. So I I moved through all that. But I think obviously the 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 vaccines we we do give them quite a free pass. Uh, traditionally, I think the profession has, um, and I think that's not where we are now at all. Uh, I think yeah. there's not at all the case. So yeah, yeah. I think it? I think. Um going on that too if, if it was a drug which clearly the mrna vaccines are a gene therapy which were you know basically tricked into the politicians were tricked into thinking it was a vaccine which it could be argued that it is because it does stimulate the immune system um but in saying that vioxx killed over a hundred thousand people in the united states and that was causing heart attacks wasn't it and that got taken off yeah. the market and they got sued accordingly obviously not 
they still made profit off it. It was still worth it for the drug company to do, but they took That's that off. That's actually not, yeah. calculated in advance. Like their their bean counters had had done the sums and said, "Look, it's going to kill this many people, and we'll have to pay this much in compensation." But on the other hand, it'll make this much for it. So yeah, let's let's go put it on the market. All good. Yeah. Now, and that that was revealed in litigation against um. It was Merck, it was Merck who who released Vioxx um yeah. onto the public. Yeah. Yeah, and look, if you look at the graph I've got here on the on the um, screen next to you, uh, this is openveyors.com. So this is the the data that's pulled from Veyers, which you can look at any any of the um, the side effects that people are reporting. And as you can see here, it's just it's pretty striking the amount of myocarditis cases. I mean, obviously all of them aren't going to be um, truthful or caused by the vaccine, but. Um, if you look at 2021 there, you know, you see where the vaccine was released. There were cases before that, which were probably caused, it looks here uh, like it was the flu vaccine, which was the main culprit before that. But it's just astronomical, astronomical. And you can't just write that off as being the whole of the population got vaccinated because in any year, you're going to get probably about 20% of the population vaccinated from flu anyway, aren't you? More, and, and I would say more than that. More yeah, than that, yeah. in the US specifically, the flu vaccination rates are higher than that, partly because it's actually on the childhood schedule. They mm. vaccinate the kids against flu, as well as, of course, all the all the elderly. Yeah, well, now COVID-19 vaccines on the childhood schedule too in the United States. So, Well, the, yeah, the um, you can't really, except perhaps in 2021, you can't even begin to use the argument that there are just so many uh, vastly more doses of this being given than anything else and therefore uh the it's picking up the background rate of all these events you can't use that post 21 it was it was a very sloppy argument in 2021 but from 2022 you you've sort of plateaued out on the on the rate of doses and they're quite equivalent to the rates of doses of say influenza vaccines so, and, and um, actually, Jessica Rose, yeah, Jessica yeah. Rose has dispatched that myth that it that it's just due to a greater number of doses being administered in yeah. in, in a short time period. Anyway, that's on her Substack, which, you know, we've got other stories to discuss, so we won't won't delve into that now. But um, Jessica Rose has a great Substack, and and she has specifically written about that that particular argument. Yeah, and if you see here, it looks like. Um... The fourth dose on here, post-fourth dose, the uh, myocarditis and pericarditis is very, very low with these vaccines. So obviously, I mean, that tells me, this is my unscientific uh, explanation anyway, this tells me there are a certain um, subset of the population who are more prone to being having their heart muscle attacked by the vaccine in general because looks the highest after first and second dose tier. First dose was high, second dose is really high, and then it drops down post third, post fourth. So I think if you've had three and still not had any problems, you're probably going to be, you know, less likely to have something. But the first two, and that explains the drop-off too when you see the the percentage of Australians, for instance, who had the first dose was like 95%, and then it drops down to 92% or something after for the second dose. So that's a good 3% of the population who, who have probably had some sort of serious um, outcome. Good point. Wow. Yeah, it's fair reasoning. Yeah, but um, this that site is incredibly. Um, mm. It's very scary, actually, just to see the obviously the CDC and the FDA aren't paying any attention to it. Uh, they're just saying, oh well, you know, people who die in a bus crash or a, or a car crash can put their 
um, data on here. So I don't Absolutely think that's ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, I, I just I cannot believe that they they can stand up in front of the public, the media, and and say absolute tosh like that well no i can believe it what what wouldn't you believe of these people after three years of this nonsense oh dear <laughs> now is this yeah, the we... is this what you were um referencing before um robin about the the batches or and uh, because you got there's an article here about jessica rose so debunking the uh, yellow different dot. different jessica rose article she's pretty prolific yeah. but but no this this was a, a different um um debunk of the the whole idea so so the the idea came out of um a, a paper published by some danish researchers that they where they saw this incredible difference in the rate of adverse reactions between different lots and they kind of grouped these these lots into three categories one that that just had adverse reactions completely off the charts and another that that had more more of a sort of moderate amount of adverse reaction and then, and then a, a third set of lots that had virtually no adverse reactions um yeah. and so you know they speculated that that the that the, the the bunch of lots that had almost no adverse reactions, may have been placebos that were um, intentionally released onto the public for uh, who knows what purpose or who knows, right? But that So that article by Jessica Rose was was essentially saying, actually, no, because I found adverse reactions to these in, in there, to, to these, to these lots in there. So, so they're, they're, they're not that low in terms of their, the rate of adverse reactions that, that they're causing. Okay, so where where are they getting this data from then? If it's if it's not um, truthful data, because this has been found yeah, in a couple um, of studies now, hasn't it? It's just a, it's just a wrong conclusion, most likely. Um, the data I don't think is incorrect. It's just there, there's a great deal of variability. Yeah, um, I'd say it's incomplete data rather than incorrect. Yeah, yeah leading to an incorrect interpretation. Mm. And um, I think the. I would say the, you know, one area where there's a lot of thought as to why batch variation uh, is being seen is, is contamination or a hypothesis of contamination. Uh, the process by which the mRNA vaccines are produced um, is called process two. Process one refers to the original way that, that the mRNA shots were made for the trials and they were done in in tiny batches, you know, several mil, I believe, um, in a very clean uh, synthesis process, which was intensive and difficult to do from mass production. So even before, I believe, from what I can understand, before the end of the trial, which is very concerning in itself, process two was commenced, and that was that's really done in 300-litre containers or vats, and it employs... Um, E. coli bacteria to to manufacture the um, the mRNA, uh, but using DNA plasmids, uh, which are a part of um, E. coli that can be um, genetically engineered for as a template to produce the RNA. So that's um, that's concerning in a number of ways. Um, we don't need to get into DNA contamination poss uh, possibly, but it also raises the question of um, endotoxin contamination, which is a byproduct. It's a, it's a part lipid, uh, lipid byproduct of 
E. coli and, and other bacteria. Now that's that's something that was there's definitely awareness of that potentiality uh, from the regulators such as the TGA and and it is a hypothesis and the reason it's still a live hypothesis that really hasn't been refuted. There's no um, there's not really forthcoming measurements that that are highly um, reassuring. Uh, but by the same token, there's there's no peer review studies at the moment which show contamination, as far as I'm aware. Um, but that's something that needs to be worked through. Yeah. Is this a so you're saying this is direct complication from the mass production of the vaccines? Yeah, look, yeah, look there, there will be in a 300 litre container, there will be a lot of um, endotoxin, there will be endotoxin present. When that's diluted out to each vial, um, that's another question. From from my understanding of the way the government and uh, government bodies and regulators have, have presented their testing, it's it's like they've they've presented an arbitrary, very high limit and said it's it's less than this. What they haven't told us is is there, you know, what is the amount, um, and I think that that's that's one re that's one way in which it's possible that contamination is is part of the variation here. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's other variables we just don't know. Yeah. What one of the other variables that Jessica Rose pointed out might account for this is is just whom these batches were were administered to. So, for instance, you know, every mm. every country, including Denmark, rolled it out to the elderly first, and the elderly, uh, especially the frail elderly in, in nursing homes who who copped the first lot, they're they're obviously you know, far more marginal in terms of their health status. And so uh you could expect a, a higher rate of really severe adverse reactions and, and deaths in the first um couple of batches, merely because of the population that you're sticking them in. So that was one of the points that, that she made in, in her article. Um and I, I'd, I'd hasten to add that she did not impugn the motives of the Danish researchers who published this paper, and she said they'd been very forthcoming in sharing their data. And and like and this is science in action, right? This is so one group of scientists they they write a paper, they put up their hypothesis, they say here's our data, and then other scientists look at that and say, oh, I found a problem with 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 your data, and 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 I'm going to challenge that. That's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. So I actually see this as being like genuine peer review as opposed to the to the pale imitation of it, which has, you know, like official peer review um, that, that the journals carry out. So, yeah. yeah. And that sort of gives the... Jessica. Well, it gives the field so much credibility too because I see Jessica Rose on Twitter a lot. Like she's taken on other scientists who, are, you know, you say they're on the same team, but there is no team for science really, is there? It's just like, it's just that's either right or it's or i don't think it's right so um you know she had a had a crack at aaron aaron siri for calling them calling them vaccines or yada 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 which is which i think is fantastic because can't we can't get into an echo chamber here we've got to we've got to be really careful about what we say is the truth here because it can change all the time uh, that's why that's why i think um you know before we we completely sort of say or the study was taken away by the Lancet because they're just scared of what they found. I think everybody really needs to go in and, and look at the study first um, and make sure 
there wasn't cherry picked data. Look, I don't, I don't believe there was, but I think it's, it's, it is very important. Like anybody that we would scrutinize in this instance, we could say, well, you know, they had like a, how many studies did they have to choose from? Like 300 studies and they only chose so many to look at. I mean, I, I want to know why they only chose those studies and why they threw the other ones out to begin with. And then we can start to go give this study more credibility. And when we do that as a collective group, then that's going to have a lot more weight to it. And it's going to be less likely to have the MSN or anybody else in our society just say, oh, well, that was uh, discredited by the Lancet and that got taken off straight away. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would say, though, that it's actually the job of a of a peer reviewer. I mean, the fact that Lancet accepted it as a preprint and didn't, um, as Chris said, just, just reject it off the bat, said that they were looking at it seriously. Well, one of the jobs of a peer reviewer is, is to point out where the study is weak, okay? So, you know, errors in, in data calculation or... or um, um, yeah, the, the the fact that their conclusion is not in line with with what they'd actually showed. So so rather than the Lancet pulling it down, I mean, it's sort of it, it's hard to imagine what justification the the Lancet has for pulling it down. Um, or it's hard to imagine that their stated reason is actually sufficient justification for pulling it down, as opposed to a justification where where you know, the peer reviewer would actually contact the study authors and say, uh, this is a weakness, you need to fix this, okay? Because that, that's a normal process of peer review, right, Chris? The, the peer reviewer critiques the paper. The authors then make edits to it, resubmit it, and, and if it passes that process, then it gets published. Yeah. So that's what Asimao um, Hotra was saying too, wasn't it, when he did the, the study on, um, was it on cholesterol in in the body and people were telling him to change stuff um in his paper it never got taken down did it he just had to change a couple of couple of lines yeah it's common yeah there's often you know moderation of a statement and um but you know science is great you can um you can say things in lots of different ways um and that's it's a good process. In some ways, it's like edit, an editorial process. Um, you you get comments and feedback from peer reviewers. Yeah, absolutely. Like their their job is to help you make a better and more accurate paper. And when peer review is actually working correctly, that's that's what it results in. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Right, so I know you mentioned earlier we've got the class action happening in Australia, Chris. Um, yeah. We're actually seeing stuff happen in Germany now. I mean, the, the, the health minister came out recently and admitted that the vaccine side effects were a lot higher than he admitted to begin with. Um, I'm not sure if he's still the minister. I'd be surprised if he is. He's still um, Carl Lauterbach. He yeah. still is. He's still that in. He hasn't, he hasn't been he's killed a, yet. He's such a clown. <laughs> 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 so um, this one is German courts start examining claims over COVID jabs. So the German courts will from Monday begin examining a series of claims of adverse effects suffered after coronavirus vaccinations more than two years after one of the world's fastest and most extensive inoculation campaigns. And there's another article here which says the same thing, but yeah, they're actually going after BioNTech directly, which you can't really do in our country because of, or, or United States because of the 
the laws, but I'm, I'm surprised they can do it in Germany too. Does anybody know much about why the why they can go directly after the drug manufacturers over there? After I'm sure they would have signed the same agreements that the rest of the world signed. Yeah, my my understanding of it is that only um, only uh, India refused to to sign those those disclaimers basically um which is why they never got the Pfizer shots so yeah I I had a look through that article and I could not find the legal grounds on, on, under which BioNTech is is being sued in Germany well they're a German company aren't they BioNTech yes yeah. they are yes yeah, the yeah. German startup but yeah. the laws like that there's 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 differences in jurisdictions there's there's um legal instruments which apply or don't apply in different places. There's a lot that, that um, companies can slip up on. Um, there are things in Australia where um, companies are, the, the, the companies are vulnerable. I won't elaborate on that. Um, and then ultimately when fraud is shown and it's, it's when not if just, just for a bold statement for the day, um, in, the, in regards to Pfizer, I'm absolutely convinced. Um, but when that's shown, then you know, then it's very, very difficult. And I think, I think, in a sense, we're flooding the zone, or we're we're seeing the flooding of the zone. There's, it's, it's, yes, a lot of people want to move on from the vaccine. They don't want to talk about it anymore, and and that's great. I'm glad that's how they feel in some ways. Um, but a huge core of people are absolutely committed because they realise that um, it's a never-again situation. We have to nail this so hard. And, yes, we're fully aware this is... We're talking about if, if we're successful, this is world-transforming. The, the world cannot go back uh, to normal. And on that on that very limited point, we would agree with Dr Klaus Schwab, wouldn't we, that there's no going back to normal. But, um, yeah, I... I think we're seeing a flooding of the zone because it's every angle and, and things are coming to maturity, whether they're court cases or autopsy papers. And it'll be it'll be more next week. Um, you know, when I'm happy to come back and talk about some of the things which I've hinted at today, which I haven't elaborated fully. There's going to be more and more. I think my impression is that the when it comes to litigation, I think the government is not prepared that I'd sit there thinking how they're going to defend themselves um, when people find ways of bringing them into court. Um, but I think drug companies do because that's who they are. They've been there spent in more and more in the last two decades. So I think they'll be they'll have certain ways in which they're prepared, but I don't think governments are very prepared. Um, and so I think Generally, they have they functioned in some um, very rudimentary thought processes that that there's crazy people who have skepticism and, and hesitancy and questions, and there's sane people who just roll up their sleeve, knowing that the authorities are to be trusted and da 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 da, and they're in for a shock. And I've seen it because I've been in cases um, where the the you know uh, representative legal representatives counsel etc are just not ready for someone who is uh, an expert witness or, or someone who's thought it really through has ironclad logic and is not backing down they're not ready for it because they haven't believed it's out there they haven't believed it could be genuinely um, 
intellectually solid stuff because that's too confronting for their worldview and it, and their deep psychology. So I think we're going to see some massive stuff. Um, it's yeah. so important. A lot of exploding going. heads. Yeah, that's really interesting, Chris. I, I don't have any doubt about what you just said. When I when I hear uh, and see the response of other parliamentarians to the likes of um, Jared Rennick or uh, Malcolm Roberts when, when or, or Russell Broadbent when they're talking about all of these injuries, um, it really it like it, it's very striking that the other politicians just dismiss these individuals as loopies and loonies and what they're saying couldn't possibly be true. I I don't think they're they're sort of, you know, in on it, right? They're they 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 weren't mm-hmm. in the in the meeting with the, you know, in the smoky room. They're just absolutely clueless. I mean, it's really striking yeah, how man. clueless they are. <laughs> yeah. But there there are psychological factors which augment that and reinforce that. We, we'll be moving, um, one of the areas we'll be moving into is advocacy around the issue of the WHO and the international health regulations, um, and we'll be providing an education platform um, with really solid, robust, well-cited and irrefutable information to go to these people, uh, to go to politicians and so forth in a credible way. That's our role. Uh, it's primarily an educational role when we're talking to politicians uh, we really need to be doing that more um, we really value the support uh, any support people can give us because I think there's no substitute for that kind of sane credible approach to try to undo and, and unravel the the psychological um, difficulties where people have just been able to pass off things uh, but I think we've got a huge opportunity in Australia and it's a real imperative to do that. Yeah, we, we certainly do. Um, the amount of politicians in Australia that are on on board with our side now is, you know, pretty staggering. Uh, you talked about the United States before, and I can't think of anybody apart from Ron Johnson either, to be honest. Uh, apart from obviously, um, you know, Florida, you've got DeSantis, who is not completely, um, you know, anti-COVID vaccine, but he's... He's he's got a knot on the Surgeon General um, Ladapo or Ladapo, however you say it, um, who's they're doing a lot to make our side more credible. Um, yeah. But yeah, Australia, we've got just got them. Me, yeah, sorry, DeSantis does appear to me to have just punted that ball to to Ladapo, yeah. almost like he can he can keep himself out of that. And you know, call call me call me cynical, but you know, Ron's got to raise some money from his, for for his presidential campaign, right? Who who are yeah. some of the best donors? The pharmaceutical companies, come on, join the dots. So so you're not going to hear Ron, you know, talking smack about the drug companies. Yeah, yeah, he's got he's, he's got a bit of a. Um, uh, a bit of involvement from Israel these days as well. We know what the yes. the connection between Pfizer and Israel. So I, I wouldn't really bank on Ron DeSantis to do much. And the the alternative in the in the Republican Party is Donald Trump, who we know his what his thoughts are about the vaccine, the perfect vaccine. Um, so yeah, he's <laughs> there's there's really is no hope there. Um, RFK Jr. is obviously doing his bit. Whether he can actually win the presidency, I, I highly doubt that. But I think the his message is what is the most important part, and that's really getting out there. Yeah, and and, and he's he's getting his message really, you know, into the mainstream now. And just going back to what Chris was saying before about there about 
you know, as being essentially in, in a pivotal moment. Yeah, we're in a pivotal moment. There are all sorts of conversations that that formerly could not be had about these mm. you know, magical, mystical products known as vaccines. And now those conversations are being had. They're being had in, you know, televised town halls. They're being had in uh, the uh, uh, Arizona legislature where Aaron Siri gave a, a really, you know, knock them out, drag them dead uh, testimony on just how absolutely abysmal the whole regulatory process for vaccines is in the United States and has been since 1986, not that it's any better here. So people who whose, eye, whose ears were formerly closed to this message are now, you know, they're awake and listening and, frankly, they can't avoid it. So, yep. yeah, we live in interesting well, think, times. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of solutions people focus on and, and um, they include sort of, more community-based solutions, which I'm all for, but it's but possible there may not be any solution other than, God forbid, gasp, a political one. You know, as much as that's, but but you know, we we've all as a community we've learnt a lot. Uh, we've, we've acquired skills we never had. We've had a awakenings in, into whole new areas, including how our politics works. Uh, and including how probably we can't just sit back and ignore it. The reason I say that is that we we need to make sure that the ones we've mentioned, like our um, our you know our well known and well appreciated senate senators who stand up for truth in every state, they need to know that we've got their back, that they will be re-elected. Okay, this is a bold statement, right? Even if they're not endorsed by their party in the in the coming election. I was going to say, you know, Jared Rennick is being targeted. It's almost certain that that he won't gain pre-selection because the the yeah. party might have bumped him off. So yeah, like he he does. He needs to know that if he runs as an independent, people will say, yeah, we want him. He stuck up for us. Yeah, and 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 that that involves a, a maturation of our movement to be able to to do different things in different states and to ensure that this is the way things run. And the contrawise issue is that whoever stands up and does not get uh, get behind the vaccine engine, I suggest that's the most important focus because it's a visible community that clearly has a right to redress and a right to um, be heard and understood, that they're not going to get our support. And um, we, we can transform this. Uh, we need a lot more, we, we need to mature further as whatever groups and movements and coalitions we are to also, I think, keep an eye on in that fire to keep that awareness and engagement with the political process because ultimately it might be the only one that can really guarantee our futures. Um, because if things just corrupt, become more and more corrupt, then you see what I'm saying? No one's, no one's, uh, sheltered but on the other hand if we keep this up keep the pressure up then the trend might be an inexorable one towards more and more transparency and awareness of this issue and other issues that are related to it and accountability that will transform the political environment here um, and maybe here before other places so i think it's really important uh, that we keep because and I say that because it's easy to just say you know we we wash our hands of, of Australian politics, but I I don't think that's wise. 
that's the problem, isn't it? Because it's still going to go on the background whether we like it or not. So while we might think like, oh, the you know, politics isn't the way, uh, what's the other way? We don't have another yeah, way at the moment, yeah. do we? Apart from complete anarchy, which um, we'll see how that, um, not in the in the political anarchy sense, I'm talking just um, where there's a power vacuum, we see what happens in countries that that happens yeah. to. Um, you know, but, but it is it is really important um, that we do get more politicians on side. And I, I think I think that's going to happen. Um, I think there's enough politicians now who could probably form their own party um, to yeah. to take at least take a, a substantial chunk of votes away. We need to get away from this multiple party system that we're all kind of fighting for the same message. But there are there are certain people out there who I think are using this to to maybe get a slice of power themselves, as you do mm. see. But there are enough mainstream politicians and Gerard, Gerard, someone like Gerard Rennick, who's incredibly reasonable, like he's smart as they come, listening to him speak. Nobody, I actually don't really see that many people trying to take him down in the MSN because he's just, he's too hard. He's too hard to, that, to take down. There's that guy, um, on on uh, Fox, no, what's that? On uh, on Sky News, <laughs> he's tried him a few times. Uh, there's he's um, yeah, he, he tries to take Jared Rennick down and uh, just has to use rhetoric. I think it's appalling what he does to that guy. Yeah, it's um, one other thing um is it's not just the COVID nineteen vaccine we have to be really careful about here. It's the the precedent it sets if we. Like, once again, if we don't really come to some sort of understanding about the crimes that we committed here, this vaccine is then going to be used as, like, you were just talking about Aaron Siri before and his his talk to, where was it? Arizona, was it? Yeah, Ari it was Arizona. Arizona Senate. Yeah. Um, so one thing they uncovered with ICANN is the fact that vaccines don't really go through safety studies. They get, they get uh, tested against another vaccine. So at the moment, there are multiple mRNA vaccines in the works. One of them is the flu vaccine. That, when that gets tested in its final phase, that's going to be tested against the COVID-19 vaccine. It's not going to be tested against the placebo. So unless we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that these things are dangerous, that's going to become the placebo for all other vaccines that are going to come out. And if you see the next page here that I've got shows the crude mortality from Australia, you can expect that to go up exponentially once we've got every single vaccine on the schedule as mRNA. You know, you obviously you, you're both familiar with this with this chart, but as soon as they came out, we had a 7.7%. Um, uh, so when did they come out? Sorry, they, uh, quarter one, 2021, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. So we've seen excess mortality straight away. Obviously, some of that will be to do with the um, COVID being the lockdowns finishing and a lot more people getting COVID, uh, especially older people who were probably locked up for the whole time too. Um, and then we just see it increasing. Luckily, it's going down a little bit now, but it's still incredibly high at 12.1%. This is a little bit delayed uh, because the ABS can't seem to get their shit together and get us stats that aren't six months old already, but we saw a 12.1% the last quarter of last year. And I expect that to stay that way 
for the next year as well. And that's that's enormous. That's the highest we've had, I think, in recorded history. Yes, and the the thing that's particularly striking is that normally when you have uh, excess mortality in in one year, given that you know the people who were who were dying um, in excess tend to be those who were near the end of their lifespan anyway, either because they're very elderly and frail or because they're younger but they have serious illness. And so normally when you have you know like a bad flu year in the past, say um, 2017, it's bad flu year in Australia, then you look at the following year and the mortality is actually lower because of what's called pull through. Okay, so you you had a bunch of I mean, these are not nice terms, but this is what this is how epidemiologists uh, talk. So you had a bunch of dry tinder, and that got burned off by the previous flu year. And so the next year, you have decreased mortality, and so you tend to have it sort of up, down, up, down, up, down. Not necessarily year by year, but but certainly over a fairly short, um, you know, span of years. And so when you see just persistently elevated mortality that goes on quarter after quarter, year after year, when all of that dry tinder is already being burned up, you know, you, you're you looking at a uh, at an unprecedented phenomenon. And, and you can see just with the height of the bars how unprecedented this is um, mm. compared to our historical record. And uh, and yet and yet we we had, what was it, 40, the out of the vote in the Senate go, I think it was 44 to 43 or something, you know, the majority of senators said, no, it's not, it's not worth our time, you know, commissioning an investigation into this. Well, well the, the first one was 40, uh, 34 against and four in favour. So it's, you know, but they, I think they're going to be very ashamed of that if we can keep getting our message out and flooding the zone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, a lot of them I think would see the writing on the wall and just be like, why do I want this investigated? Because I'm complicit in it. Yeah, look, that's, yeah, that's um, that's the kind of thinking which I imagine some are experiencing. And this is something that's taking out young healthy people too. This is a article from the last week. This is international bodybuilder Joe Linda, known as Joe Stetics. So he's dead at age 30. I'm not sure if you saw this guy pop up, but he's got 8 million followers on Instagram, really popular guy in the bodybuilding industry, built like an absolute brick shit house. Um, he is now dead. He had a brain aneurysm. But the one thing I found really interesting about this is I'm going to play this clip here for you guys. Um, where are we? Where are we? Oh, Robin, I think you're on mute. Oh, sorry. There we go. Well, while you're getting the video playing, um, I'm racking my brains trying to figure out why a healthy young guy thinks he needs four shots. Yeah, well, he explains here, and uh, yeah, it's like everybody else. It's yeah, I'll, I'll let the clip play. Anyway. Yeah. Did you get the vax? I, I got the vax. Did you really? Yeah. Oh. Even four. Really? Yeah. Oopsie. Why? Yeah, and also, Bru, you know how it is. This is the same like you go to a party. You were worried about your heart? And you are with the wrong people. All of a sudden, you might do something on this party that you don't want to do because there's these people that are like, you know, you, you should do it. <laughs> dude, fuck. So Damn, I'm in this dude. place also. I was in this place. We don't need to say where it is exactly, but I was there and my friends said like, we can get it. You should get it, man. And I'm like... You got peer just... pressured into the vax? Yeah, kind is of. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like, fuck no. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. It is I'm, what I'm, it is. I, I, when I think about it later on, I'm like, what did I do, man? But 
Oh my God, this turns into weird cons controversy therapy, uh, conspiracy <laughs> therapies, uh, theories, because I did blood cleaning twice after all this. I did a plasmaphorosis with taking out heavy metals and all that stuff. Oh man, yeah, I did all this. I don't know, is this this is too controversial probably to say this. Wait, no, say it, say I, it. I went to the doctor and I did my blood work again because I take my blood work all the time. And then I show it to the doctor and we kind of see these particles and i'm like what is this and then they all no say, way this dude. is this is shut from, the fuck up this is from this and i'm like oh my god and then i show it to another of my friends and there's all kind of hidden websites that you can't get to but it's like the dark oh media kind god. of web and there's even more conspiracies this is crazy as fuck because i know you're the kind of guy who for sure you got your blood work all the time and then you're telling me you got the thing and then you got your blood work and then it was cr fucking crazy and and yeah and this this guy's also big into it so he's like you need to do a plasmaphorosis now. So they poke like a fucking needle into your arm here, which is like like the like the like a pen, you know, like thick like this, right? Unbelievable yeah. thick needle. And they take all your blood out, put it into this machine, and then clean it and bring it back. So we did this with the heavy metal cleaning and all this stuff, which supposedly cleaned my blood. I did a D-dimer test and all this. I don't know if you know what it is. It's like this determines like the clotting of your arteries, blood yeah. arteries and stuff like D-dimer and like my D-dimer was this and then after all this, it was dead. And then, yeah, I did so this. So did it improve after you got that I removal? Did it, yeah, twice. I did it in six month period, like one time and then the second time. Also expensive as fuck, man. Like, yeah, it's no fun, man. Uh, so yeah, I was so shocked, and the doctor was like, "You need to do it, man, if you want to like survive after you took these shots, bro." No way! You need to do this now. Yeah, this was like that actually. Oh, <laughs> shit! Because I don't know if the nurse did something weird. Because when she took the she this in Thailand, obviously. Yeah. So when she then took out the blood, and then it's like there was some like a white thing in there, and I'm like, "What the fuck is that?" And then they may be like, "Maybe cholesterol," and I'm like, "What I have so high? Like, what the fuck is this?" So, then I showed this to my friend. He's conspiracy. Oh, he shows no. me all these websites where it's like, since since they do this to people, so and so many, they found this in athletes and stuff. And that's a weird like reason why people, they die. They have these white blood clots, tons of them in their blood everywhere. And so they're like, this is what you maybe have. We go to this other doctor and make further testing. And then I make further testing and he's like, not white. It was not white anymore. There was no white thing. It was probably air, just like the nurse didn't do it right. But he then said, there's these black particles. This is the heavy metal that you have in your blood. <laughs> Dude, that whole thing just trips me out. Yeah, that was such a crazy time, man. Like yeah. an actual crazy time. Wow. What a what an incredible what an incredible situation where he's so articulated about all of that and yet now he's passed away. Yeah, I think it's in incredibly damning. Um you know, one of the, I mean, you've seen this with Shane Warne, which has now, you know, uh, come out. Um, people really sort of putting credence to the fact that he was killed by it. Um, we didn't know this beforehand that he went to Thailand because he was having chest pains after the vaccine. He went to a health retreat to see if he could fix that. Uh, and then you've had Jamie Foxx in the United States, who's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Uh, the family's denying that it has anything to do with the vaccine, but he was staunchly against the vaccine, ended up getting it for a movie and then fell sick uh, directly after that. Um, he's basically unable to speak um, and he's gone blind apparently, which is, a, as we know, is a is a side effect of the COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah. Um, there's just more and more of this. 
Yeah, you won't, you only have to subscribe to Mark Crispin Miller's Substack. He does his weekly oh. kind of guide suddenly um wrap up which start which began as just like a single post and then morphed into we've got a separate diet suddenly for the US and there's one for Canada and then there's one for Europe and then there's one for Asia and now there's one for celebrity celebrity sorry um and and musicians and and, and so on and so forth and it's, I'm like I can't even read it now it's yeah I don't even want to look at it. It, it. It's just absolutely nuts. The and and sure, I mean, did um, did famous people or young people or athletes did bad things happen to them before? Did they get diagnosed with cancer? Did they suddenly you know develop heart conditions? Yeah, that happened before. Did it happen with the frequency that we're seeing now? <laughs> right. That mm. that's the thing that's changed. So. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, Poor old Joe. Part of the. Uh... I think we've, we've sort of touched on pharmacovigilance uh, with reporting of adverse events. Typically, that's understood to be a government responsibility, uh, a regulator's responsibility, alongside that of sort of approving drugs for a market. But um, it's also the responsibility of drug companies. And, um, in fact, the, the TGA's documentation holds sponsors of drugs, i.e. the drug companies, to... Um, to do pharmacovigilance on all their products. One aspect I find interesting is that in the TGA's documentation, the drug companies have to uh, have kind of an approach where causality is implied. So as much as, even if they disagree, they have to accept any notification they receive as until proven otherwise, it's from their product as it's notified when, when a medicine is suspected. But um, another thing, another aspect of that is that um, part of the pharmacovigilance activities of drug companies has to be social media. Incredibly. People, I don't think people know this, but they, they have to look for trends on social media. Now, governments also should be looking at this too, from what I understand. Oh, but they're looking is, at it, Chris. They take these groups down. <laughs> All like well, the well, they're, they're, they're the rub. <laughs> There's the rub. So uh, say, let's take Pfizer, pretty well-known company. Um, do they, for instance, uh, donate money to fact-checkers and various other ways in which um, teaming up with social media, they can take down and pressure posts? Um, on the other hand, they have a responsibility, a contractual responsibility, to be looking for safety signals among other places, on social media. And yet they've got a mechanism there of discrediting those things. This is an absolute scandal. And, Again, and now, of course, yeah. Yeah, now we have the legislation that they want to bring in, which will yeah. actually force social media companies to take down anything that the government judges as misinformation. Otherwise, they, they get these ridiculous penalties. So yeah. that, that's really interesting, Chris. I did not know that that surveillance of social media was part of the pharmacovigilance um, responsibilities. So so they're, they're basically deep-sixing the ability of, of these companies to do that. Um, it's an awful scandal. If it but that's, for that, that's, that's conspiracy theory thinking, isn't it? <laughs> Well, it's 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 too obvious. Uh, both you know, both phenomena are, are well described. You know, what what's the what's the pharmacovigilance um, uh, responsibility in the EU? Uh, 
enhanced pharmacovigilance framework. It's to look at social media and lots of other inputs. And then the other side, do we know where the drug companies are funding fact checkers? We 100% know that. So it's a, uh, and, and what is, you know, as the theme says also, it's about if you compare the expenditure of a drug company to R&D, like the actual science research stuff, um, compared to the marketing activities, well, it, it ranges between twofold and 20-fold more so they're much better the, the the wins are much more in marketing uh, than actual science we know that they will do a risk calculus where they know they've gonna they're gonna have some form of you know penalty through litigation they will look at the profit they'll look at the balance sheet you mentioned Viox. the other one was um avandia a, a diabetes drug rosiglitazone where i from my if my memory serves, they were making several billion dollars a year from diabetes patients, and I think it was more than Viox was making. And they calculated ahead of time that they were going to lose a certain number of billion dollars, but not as much as they were making in one year. So they were very happy to keep going. And, and, um, and of, of course, the yeah. vaccines, the companies have zero marketing costs because the government does the marketing for them at taxpayers' expense. So the, the so the producers of the COVID vaccines haven't had any marketing costs and they have zero liability. It's it's the it's the perfect situation for you know the 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 psychopathy of the corporation, which mm. and that's not my idea. I mean that's what the movie the that's what the Doco the Corporation was all about. Corporations are essentially psychopaths. And the mm. only thing that restrained that psychopathy, again, this is what Aaron Siri pointed out in the in his presentation to to the Arizona State House, the only thing that, that restrains that is is market forces. Yeah. Um, namely, that, that if you injure the, the a member of the public, they can freaking sue you. Mm. So if you if you take that yeah. out of the picture, they have zero marketing costs, they have zero liability. Why wouldn't they just make the most you know criminally unsafe products that they could possibly make? Heavily contaminated with with you know plasmid DNA from the E. coli that they use to produce the RNA. Why wouldn't they do it? There's Stop. nothing to stop them. Doesn't that tell you something too? Like the whole point of the 1986 Act was because the pharmaceutical companies said it wasn't worth their money to make vaccines because they were getting litigated against so frequently. Mm. So you're saying even a drug which kills like what 100,000 people, like Vioxx, for instance, it was still worth them making it and getting sued over because they were still going to make massive amounts of profit, but a vaccine wasn't? That doesn't sound very safe and effective to me. Yeah, and of course you 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 know what um you know what the the so the HPV vaccine um you know what the joke is among vaccine risk awareness circles um it stands for help pay for Biox. <laughs> really? Hmm. Yeah, and uh, was it Julie Gerberding the the she was in charge of the the vaccine director? With, yeah, yeah, and, and, and yeah. then got a job with was it Merck? Is Merck's it Merck? vaccine yeah. division. Yeah. Absolutely, she did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, absolutely shocking. Um, I mean, these things. I thank. Uh, I just, I just thank my lucky stars these days. We've got guys like RFK out there who are actually bringing this into the in the mainstream. I mean, you've got to see that. Um, I think we discussed this last week about his um, the interview we had on News Nation, and he had the doctor that got up and asked him a question, and he just he sort of like blew them both away with his with his answer. It was fantastic to watch. You actually saw the doctor sort of take a bit of a, uh, a check there and go, oh, 
he's kind of accepted oh, what he, he said. Yeah. He he started to crumble. You know, he yeah. came up to the mic and he's all like, all peacock proud, you know, shoulders back. And then he visibly crumbled yeah. under, you know, and, and not that RFK was attacking him, he never does. Um, but he just he just barrages people with with facts laid out very clearly, very calmly. It's like, what do you got now? <laughs> you got nothing against him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like your Alex Jones types, the very who are quite and while he, he says a lot of the true stuff, he's very easy to discredit by his, his yeah, just yeah. His, yeah, I mean, R- really. RFK can now talk about you know um, atrazine, yeah. <laughs> which, which you know, unfortunately, Alex Jones kind of poisoned the well on that with the whole "make the frogs gay" thing. But <laughs> 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 anyway, so, oh. at least there's a presentation of of the whole you know um, uh, risk to, sec- to to sexual function of atrazine that doesn't involve. Alex Jones hyperbole. Yeah. Now, talking about sexual function, I I really want to just get on the record what what Chris said, you know, before before we went live today um about there being uh, about uh, okay, t- take it away Chris. You you were talking about how you'd actually have to specifically design lipid nanoparticles to be able to pass into the ovary. So th- this is obviously in reference to the lipid nanoparticles, the delivery system for, for the mRNA, um, having been found through that freedom of information request that Byron Bridal put into the Japanese government, where they found that the lipid nanoparticles actually concentrated in the ovary. So, um, yeah, tell us more, Chris, because this was news oh, to me. So, so first of all, the, um, the data about biodistribution um, of lipid nanoparticles comes from yeah, uh, some studies done by Pfizer. The first I became aware of it was in May 21 with the release of uh, something from the Japanese Ministry of Health, which they'd received from Pfizer. It was in Japanese. I got it translated. Um, and that showed accumulation. Well, it showed a number of things. First of all, fairly efficient transport of the lipid nanoparticle into the bloodstream. A little bit of a clarification. Um, the novel lipid uh, lipids involved in the lip- lipid nanoparticle along with cholesterol and other ones which people are less concerned about. Um, the, the lipid nanoparticles are unloaded lipid nanoparticles in this study, which means they're not chock full of the mRNA, which means they're slightly different to the uh, in vivo behavior that perhaps um, exists in, in humans. Um, but if it's in, injected into muscle, that unfortunately doesn't mean going to stay there and, and he said before it was only minutes before they saw this in the bloodstream and we, people were told let's let's just make this 100 clear people were told at the outset the injection goes into the deltoid muscle and it stays there it kind of you know drains into the lymph nodes around that but but you know it, it's going to stay put not true yeah and that was written in um the highest of you know medical in journal impact factors i think nature Medicine, uh, nature um, articles I read said this, which I knew to be false. I, I intuitively knew it to be false before before that study because of what I was seeing in the clinic. Um, you know, in other words, remote systems and organs being affected, and bl- the blood being affected. You know, <laughs> but um, so that that study um, showed that, as people will probably know, that there was persistence. Of the of the lipid nanoparticle and then accumulation in certain um, sites, 
in the end of that, I think only 25% or, or maybe less was still present in the muscle and the rest had distributed or disseminated. Uh, the organs which had collected the most were the liver and the spleen. Now, that is that is predictable because the liver and the spleen have gaping white holes in the capillaries. Capillaries normally don't have holes. They have little intercellular clefts, which are um, on the nanoscale. They're only 20 micron, uh, twenty nanometers in, um, in uh, diameter. And... The lipid nanoparticle itself is estimated to be about 100 nanometers. And so some studies give a range like 80 to 160 or something, but I generally use 100 nanometers, uh, which is a thousandth of the width of a red blood cell. You know, it's, it's a tiny little thing. Um, so it's, but even that, it's not going to easily get through a capillary unless there's big holes in the capillary or there's some other factor like inflammation. Um, and so the the organs where there's big gaping holes are called um, sinusoidal papillaries. Liver and spleen are going to collect more of it. It makes sense. Um, and all I'll say, because it's a very sensitive issue, is that it also accumulates in some other places. The ovary and I believe the adrenal glands were the, the next in line. And from memory, the colon and the bone marrow. Um, so... Um, but everywhere else it was just getting less and less, those ones it was getting more, and that that graph or that um, that chart was cut off in 48 hours. Um, all I'll say, Robin, is because it's very controversial, I don't know how uh, or what distinguishes the ovary uh, from those other organs where it was diminishing, um, whereby it would collect this particle uh, over 48 hours. Um, I won't say anything else about yeah the is, yeah, yeah. The, the the crucial thing um that I really wanted to emphasize here is you know again we discussed this before we went live um I mean it's very clear that there is there is no immunological reason there's there's no there's no purpose that's going to be served by by having um like a a, a payload intended to induce immunity delivered by like oh, yeah. Article in into a reproductive organ, and so you know that that's bad enough. But like, if 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 the particle has to be specifically engineered to get into the ovary, if it if it if a lipid nanoparticle normally wouldn't behave that way, I mean, we got a lot of questions, and Alex Berenson's been asking them. So yeah, Mitch, this is um this is Alex Berenson's uh, wrap up, I suppose of um the uh baby crisis or the lack of baby crisis yeah i've got i've got this article here um and yeah just going through the the reduction in births in countries that were high on the mrna vaccine so we've got sweden here had 115,000 births annually from um 2012 2021 last year births plunged from 105,000 oh sorry to 105,000 in 2023 they're tracking below 100,000 uh, Germany had similar records. Um, so Europe as well got, and so I think the, the biggest one here was was South Korea, where um, where's, where is South Korea? The birth rate is now barely one third the level needed to keep the country's population stable. Uh, the, obviously, there's other factors here too. I know Japan's been going through a, a bit of a birth crisis in the last. Um, well, the last ten years, I think the the 
the older population is outnumbering the younger population by enormous amounts. Yeah, uh, also, Japan and, and, and South Korea have been in demographic crisis for quite, quite some time. But, yeah, um, they have been. You see the graphics. Yeah. yeah, pretty pretty, pretty striking. But, um, With South Korea, though, it's just falling off a cliff. The birth yeah. rate is falling off a cliff. I think I'm going to get kind of conspiratorial here because a lot of the the fears about this vaccine was the fact that it was a, a, some sort of depopulation agent. I think a lot of a lot of people assumed that meant that it would kill a lot of people. And while it has killed a lot of people, I think what's the best way to reduce the population is to prevent life, not kill people. I mean, a lot of the people it's killing are going to be the older generation who aren't going to have children. But if you can, you can prevent people from having two children, you're automatically going to halve the population within 40 years, aren't you? Pretty obvious, isn't it? It's pretty obvious. Well, yeah. I'll I'll take a contra the contrarian view here because I think also, as I said before, human fertility is the most powerful thing, uh, and the drive to have children is so massive. I think if this were to become the crisis, would become known. People go out of their way to have kids, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that could offset it. Okay, so so how about I get contra 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 conspiratorial <laughs> on you, Chris? Because you know we're now we're now seeing this increasing push for um, the kinds of you know babies being grown in 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 vats, you know horror scenario that all Huxley uh, described in in Brave New World, and you know so we're we're seeing, for instance, the development of of uterus transplants, and this was initially done for women who had lost uh, the uterus due to, for example, um cancer or a car accident or something like that, where they would receive a uterus transplant from a woman who had, you know unfortunately died, but not from a reason that affected her uterus. And there have been um there has been at least one live birth from this. But we're now seeing the the proposal that this uterus transplant be um, be used in order for for men who want to be women to be able to have babies so it really is about stan becoming loretta and and having babies and and you know reg can't tell him you can't have babies you don't have a uterus anymore because stan can actually get a uterus from a dead woman or maybe from from a from an animal because i have seen one of the scariest articles i've ever read, read in my life was about you know uterus transplants from non-humans right like <laughs> transplanting yeah no i'm serious this was in a medical journal talking about uterus transplants from from primates or possibly even from pigs so yeah um yeah it's it's terrifying and and um and so the idea of of having you know of producing human um producing baby humans you know ex utero or or certainly in a in an artificial uterus let's just say it's not sci-fi anymore and so you know if you wanted to kind of make brave new world real <laughs> I don't know. How about engineering a mass infertility crisis in humans so so they couldn't make babies the old-fashioned way? Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's a bit of a premonition, really, isn't it? Brave new world, and you all you have to look is the is the uh, the history of the family who who yeah. wrote wrote that Julian Huxley. When, when, when I with. When I read Brave New World, I assumed Aldous Huxley was was like he was on our side, and then you find yeah you find out about about his granddaddy, you know, um, Darwin's bulldog, uh, T.H. Huxley. Huxley. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 his brother and his 
and his brother's very interesting comments in the in the founding document of UNESCO about needing to make eugenics um you know acceptable to the public again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really there. Him. Yeah, and you kind of realize, yeah. okay, yeah, uh, he's he wasn't he wasn't batting for our team. No, <laughs> he's well, a very very strange character. Leonard Huxley was their cousin, and he came out to be the Chancellor of ANU, I believe, in the sixties, and uh, died later that decade. So it's interesting the family uh, is connected with Australian intellectual and academic history. That that is fascinating. That is mm. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I yeah, I it, towards the end of his life, uh, Aldous was saying some really interesting things, wasn't he? But I, and he famously wrote to um George Orwell congratulating him on the publication in the early fifties of nineteen eighty four, but arguing that his model would be more likely in which um people were led to love their servitude, as he would often say. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I, I think it's a bit of a mixture of both, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've never read his. I believe it was his final novel, um, The Island. But my understanding of the of it is, it's essentially, um, it's a it's a a rebuttal. Let's just say of a brave new world. One of these days, I'll get around to reading it. But my my stack of unread books is already up to the ceiling, so not not quite mm. ready to add another one to it. Yeah, I think I, I come. I sort of come to the conclusion that Aldous was um, yeah, in possession of all this information and wanted to get it out to the public in the way he knew best, which was obviously fiction or non-fiction, if you want to call it that, really. But um, I, I, yeah, I, I think maybe Aldous might have been one of the good guys. Um, Could have been. Yeah. Maybe and and yeah and maybe he did have an epiphany at some point in his life and think no this is this is really crazy stuff and I don't. Oh, want I to think if you read the Doors Perception, it's pretty clear that he had a, quite a few epiphanies. <laughs> <laughs> Assisted by some substances, yeah. we probably better not name on this on this broadcast in case any children are listening. <laughs> Hopefully not to this one. There's been a few swear words, so yeah. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, we'll finish off with this article here, and this is just to sort of back up what um, Alex Berrison is, is talking about. So the article of this is expert hits back at anti-vaxxers for hijacking birth data for faux science. So the number of babies born in some public hospitals has dropped to their lowest levels in more than a decade, sparking a conspiracy. And as you can see here, this is the graph we see. Just after 2021, which I'm not sure what happened in 2021, but something pretty major happened. Uh, and after that, we've seen it plummet. Um, this is New South Wales. The, the data from from Victoria doesn't really say the same thing. I've got the... I do have that here, which I'll just well, open up. What are you going to have in incomplete December there, for sure? So and That's why... Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I, was, I was saying, do not, I hope no one puts this graph out because what you, you'll have is a re premature release of the data where the December is not complete. That's yeah. the most likely explanation. I've seen this, different forms of this. And um, it serves you right if you're going to put something out like that uncritically. But, uh, pro you know, this is this is definitely a hit piece. Yeah, and I mean, 
they're not rebutting the fact that the the numbers aren't ready yet there was last year i believe or at the start of the year where they had births registered per month in victoria and it showed like a massive decrease of like 70 percent or something like that but that quickly got said well the it's not completed we haven't actually done that data which was believable because yeah. you see the the snails pace of the abs yeah and, and especially in december you know people people are busy with other stuff they don't bother registering their babies that were born in december until well into january <laughs> you know it's understandable yeah definitely and as you see here like the the data i mean while some months are down some months are massively up october 2022 was at nine thousand, and the previous year it was at six thousand. so that's quite a massive jump there october 2021 um, was actually nine months after the vaccine was released. So you might have seen something there, possibly. Uh, or the although, fact that maybe, maybe people the didn't want to get pregnant when they were campaign the didn't really kick off in force in Australia until April. Yeah, so no, it didn't, did it? The only people who were getting it in February were um, very elderly people and, and I guess some healthcare workers, but but the, the campaign for the public didn't kick off in April, uh, didn't kick off until April. And then, of course, it went by age groups. So it wasn't until, um, I'm you know, my, my guess, I, I'd have to verify this, but my guess would be it wasn't until sort of, you know, June, July that that people of reproductive age, spe specifically women of reproductive age, would have would have been able to get it, and and then yeah. of course the um the mandates weren't introduced until later that year. So because you know that what one of the most vaccine hesitant groups in Australia prior to the rollout was was women of fertile age. I remember reading a number of articles that were written on it where the government was really concerned that this group was was going to be resistant because they they were worried about the effects on their fertility, unsurprisingly. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've probably got that uh, playing into it too, where women probably like, well, I'm not going to you know, get pregnant right now because I'm not sure what will happen. Uh, clearly in the studies, there were some worrying signs that it did affect fertility. And as you see in Berenson's article, birth rates are down around the world, whether that's to do with, I think this, this article ends up, ends up talking about uh, and blaming climate change, like every other, every other thing in the world is blamed on climate change. Um, but funnily enough, I think there is a bit of merit to that. I think I think the fact that a lot of young people these days are like, oh, I don't want to bring a, a child into this world because it's just yeah. Really like there, there is definitely climate doomerism. But why would it have suddenly ramped up in that in that period of time? I mean, that's the bit that that just makes that explanation not wash. Yeah, and yeah, in the end, it's one of those things we have to keep an eye on. Um, Personally, I've seen enough information to to really now home the fact that birth rates are being affected by the vaccine. Um, but it's it's all it's all opinion at the moment, isn't it? For well, for me especially, unless anybody's got anything to add to this. Oh, I I do just remember the um the fertility specialist at the Martyr um who uh, who is um. Basically, like he was working with with women who were uh, who had reduced fertility due to advanced age or you know prior health conditions or whatever, and he noticed that the implantation rate in his patient population who had had the jab had dropped by about two thirds, if I remember rightly. And then, of course, he lost his job at the Mater and they shut down his research. So, yeah, okay, that's just one fertility specialist. Um, yeah, that's, that's Dr. Lou McClendon, but he's 
he's down but not out. He's coming out with some incredible uh, good things, just continuing to do what he does yeah. uh, with, you know, good intellectual rigour. Uh, I think he submitted a few publications, so there's there's more coming out from Luke. Yeah, good. Th- thanks for reminding me of his name. I, I I had forgotten his name, but no, good good on him. And and so yeah, at the moment we we're very much in the watch and wait stage. But um, Berenson certainly that that post assembles a heck of a lot of results of of, of studies. Everything from um, the impact on on sperm count and sperm motility to mm just like the raw data on, on birth rates all in the one post. So it's a pretty good go-to in, in, in terms of, I suppose, what, what to look for, you know, what to look for in future um, with, with fertility. Yeah. And like like any of our stories we have on the show, they're all in the show notes. So jump onto the webpage, standupnowaustralia.com.au, um, onto our podcast webpage there and all of our podcasts are there with all the show notes, all the videos and also add them in our in your favourite podcast catcher which you can find on Apple, Spotify, uh, Podcasting 2.0, you name it, we've got it. So, <laughs> But I think we'll end it there today. Um, but thank you once again for joining us, Robin, and thanks, Chris, for taking time out of your day, especially with, uh, you know, a few more kids running around the house at your place it's actually really quiet there not like my house so i I could see my my mic levels going up as my kids were having a a good game of minecraft next door to me so no i'm uh it hasn't been i I can hear them thumping and jumping all around Uh, you probably can't hear it i've got um i've got some other friends of stand up uh (laughs) drop their kids off (laughs) today so it's a it's a bit of a house i've got one rat central Yeah, yeah. So is that an advertisement for anybody to that you'll look after people's kids in the in the Santa community? Chris Neal's daycare. <laughs> well, uh, no, not intended to be that. But um, it's, uh, yeah, we've got one little baby who's about uh, twelve weeks old today, and um, he's so he's our first post lockdown baby. Awesome, awesome! Congratulations. Yeah. Well, you're going to have a lot of requests for photos from from viewers. I oh, yeah. okay. I predict. <laughs> All right. Well, awesome. cheers, guys. Uh, enjoy. What is it? It's Friday today, so enjoy your weekend. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll speak to you soon. Catch you soon, Mitch. <laughs>